what you'll hear on Patreon. And so if they accept that planning at scale is not possible, then it isn't possible for healthcare and for education either. And yet they just assert that th these sectors are possible. And I think this is why the market socialists regularly collapse into just social democrats. They just accept that the best that we can do is a mixed economy and then don't question why it's okay for these sectors, but not these other sectors. Whereas I think where I'm coming from is arguing that there might be something to some sectors where it's just really rebarbative to, to, to the economic plan. I don't know what, don't know why that might be. We need to investigate that. And so I'm not asserting that we can plan absolutely everything yet. I hope that we can, but so long as we have this North Star of always aiming towards trying to uh, decommodify as much as possible, remove markets as much as possible. And in the process, it's, it's sort of an experimentation as we move forward through policy, treated as a sort of scientific endeavor, where we try to uh, study why certain sectors may be uh, amenable to uh, decommodification, other sectors not, or parts of sectors. And then at the end of the day, if, you know, in a hundred years time, 250 years time, we find that we have achieved a 75% decommodified global economy, but there's 25%, I don't know, maybe it's restaurants. Let's just say for whatever reason, restaurants is just really, really hard to um, do decommodify restaurants, but we want restaurants. And so we'll allow that. Then that, I suppose that's the best that we can do, but we need to hold on to that North Star. I would say that social Democrats at least since the 1970s, I've lost hold of that North Star, and certainly since uh, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. <laughs> I'm a science writer, a political journalist. Uh, my I've written two books. Um, the first came out in 2014 with zero books. Uh, it was Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. And then the second one was the People's Republic Walmart, which co-authored co with um, Canadian economist uh, Michal Rosworski. Uh, my work has appeared in uh, Nature, The New Scientist, uh, MIT Technology Review, Science, uh, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph. I worked in Brussels for uh, many years covering um, climate policy and science policy to the European Union. The main way that I've come across your work is through um, your book on auster austerity ecology. Um, I think that's the first thing that I came across, but I also am a huge fan of your book, People's Republic of Walmart, and I assign it to my students. Um, and I wondered if you could give a sense of what that book was about. It was supposed to be a sort of popular introduction to the uh, economic calculation debate, sometimes called the socialist calculation debate, uh, which was a debate between um, economists began in the basically in the 1920s as to whether it was feasible uh, to um, to plan an economy to have economic planning. And um, I, in the last few years, since the book has come out, that has um, really exploded. The conversation about that has really exploded again. But when Mihao and I were initially uh, writing it, this was something that wasn't really a, a major topic, uh, even on the left. That there wasn't a lot of focus on. Um, on the question of economic planning. Why, why is this book that's an introduction to a, a very dry topic of economic calculation entitled People's Republic War? Because the, so the claim made on insert more conservative circles is that economic planning uh, fails because um, there are simply too many, uh, well, for two reasons, basically. There's, uh, the first is that there's simply too many variables in any sort of supply chain, in any sort of production process, uh, for uh, 
that to be um, to be to be tracked by a certain army of bureaucrats in a, in a, a government planning office compared to the very simple uh, process of the price signal in the market. Um, and the second reason is that um, that there's a lot of tacit knowledge that um, uh, that exists within the economy that it emerges through uh, the, the through the buying and selling in the marketplace, and that that knowledge once again would have to be uh, would be have to be sought out by this army of bureaucrats, and inevitably there would be uh, there would be gaps there because these this army of bureaucrats will always have some sort of um, there will always be lacuna in their in their information gathering, and those gaps in knowledge will uh, result in shortages, and those shortages will um, result in uh, political uh, sort of chaos that drives um, the, the emergence of author authoritarianism. Therefore, it is best for basically everything to be allocated um, through uh, through market signals rather than through the price signal in markets rather than uh, through uh, through economic planning. And the, um, the, the argument that, that we make, that Michal and I make is, uh, well, um, Walmart, the largest corporation in the world, um, it, it certainly exists within a sea of prices, but internally it is an entirely planned economy and it is at a scale um, comparable to the, you know, the Soviet Union in, in roughly the 1970s. Um, so, the idea that um, the larger that you get, that you can't plan at scale, is proven false by the very existence of the most capitalist company that exists, the largest company uh, uh, in the world, uh, Walmart. So we tried to do a bit of political jujitsu ju there, where we use um, the, the, the greatest example of, 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 of capitalist success as a rationale for it, explanations, evidence for the feasibility of planning of economic planning at great scale. Can you give me a sense of what that planning looks like? In the book, you you compare it to the disastrous introduction of internal markets versus what it actually, you know, that when people work together, how smoothly it goes, that planning actually in this, at least internally, works better than markets. So could you give me a sense of how that happens? Sure. So one of the things that um, there's a there's an enormous amount of uh, literature within uh, sort of, uh, business studies on exactly what makes uh, Walmart work, and that's 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 what we we investigated, uh, or some of the things that, that we investigated in our research. And um, the um, it has to understand that there is a um, it's a radical reaching in through the supply chain, uh, and sort of reaching in of information and the sharing of information um, between. The suppliers and um, and Walmart. In fact, actually, quite quite deep into the supply chain, um, beyond just the the immediate suppliers, um, and the business scholars describe this as a sort of firmification of the supply chain. And uh, in all of the contracts, there's there's a there's a there's a commitment to this this immediate sharing of information. But it goes both ways. So the minute that that um, anything is taken off the shelf and sold in uh, in a Walmart, that information is also relate back through the supply chain to the various different levels of suppliers. Again, this is this is uh, this is a sort of firmification of of, um, of the supply chain, um, and that obviously requires a great deal of trust. But um, uh, it is uh, crucially enabled by a whole series of technologies that have developed over the last uh, 30, 40 years. 
uh, to enable that information to to um, uh, to be sent out immediately to uh, uh, through the supply chain um, the minute that uh, the minute something so so that those um, so that everybody along the supply chain can adjust um, their predictions about what is uh, what is what is what they should be producing um, the. The contrast that we have there is a very, very, very simplified version of the, the story. Go into much more detail in, in the book. So when uh, Sears was taken over by a, uh, a figure who was very much a sort of uber capitalist, um, uh, a Randian, um, and horrified that when he at the, he looked internally at that at, at Sears, the, the different departments, of course, they they told each other they had different information about what they were selling, and uh, the marketing department worked with. You know the um, uh, the vacuum cleaner department and and so on and so forth, um, as anybody does within any large or uh, any any firm. Um, and he was horrified at this because this is this is communism. There should instead be the different departments should compete against each other, and that would produce superior outcomes. Um, but immediately the um, you know the marketing de marketing department isn't isn't speaking any longer to the uh, the, um, uh, the the vacuum cleaner department. Um, the uh, the various different departments are competing against each other, and so if it they, if it made sense for them to sell something or to get in um, a stock of uh, some um, some item that was made out of house. Uh, it would make more and that they could get more cheaply than something per, uh, something made in-house. They would do so because that would make more sense for their unit. But for the company as a whole, that undermined those other departments, which overall undermine undermine the profitability of the organization. And the end of, end result was sort of the collapse of collapse of Sears that everybody knows about. So um, yeah, we have a again we use this as our political jujitsu where we take. Um, um, the 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 example of uh, the application of capitalist principles and market principles um, in Sears and showed that how it it was it was a disaster and then through the rest of the book we look at other um, other other examples of both the planning uh, uh, that worked and that didn't that didn't work uh, so we talk about the 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 great question immediately is well what about the Soviet Union the Soviet Union declares and we we turn the story on its on its head where it isn't the planning that leads to the authoritarianism but we show how historically it was the um, the the Stalinist capital revolution um, that introduced the the authoritarianism that undermined the system of planning um, rather than the planning that led to to Stalin when you were explaining the um the sort of internal planning that goes on. Well, before I get to that, it's just in, it made me think just now that, you know, you kind of introduce this, these sort of internal markets and you just show how internal markets lead to the, you do such a good job in the book of explaining how internal markets just led to ruin and how it all just became very chaotic. And I've been in a situation like that with internal markets where somebody had the bright idea, oh, we'll just get all the different departments to compete against each other for resources yeah. and then they're going to be much more efficient and, you know, because they're competing. And then you look in the next department, you're like, they're teaching the same things we are to six students and we're teaching, you know, for six students, you're just duplicating work. It was horrible for the institution as a whole. And this was somebody just like, you know, introducing that. But it's interesting how a what was a free market, not free market, a market produced accidentally a kind of socialism, at least internally, that horrified um, the um, 
new uh, CEO, I'm not sure what he was, of Sears. And he said, no, 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 we have to break this down, not realizing that this was a kind of organic uh, development, that this is just what would work best. But I can hear the voice of the critic saying, well, when you were describing internal planning, you start with that price mechanism. You start with a purchase that sends a signal. So yes, these are little islands of planning, but they exist within, as you said, a sea of prices. Yes. So does that really translate then if you take away that external sea of prices that creates this <laughs> internal uh, kind of socialism, if you want to call it that? Right. So the argument we make in the book, which is confused, like some people have confused this, is not, we do not make the argument that it is feasible to completely eliminate prices entirely from the global from the global economy we don't say it isn't possible either it's it's an it's an open hypothesis the the uh, the challenge that we are making is the claims made that uh, planning at scale is not possible and that the soviet union also i mean we have to remember the soviet union also existed within a sea of prices it was an island of planning uh, externally it sold um it's um sold many of its products for uh for hard currency um, to to purchase other um, uh, commodities that it couldn't make internally, there wasn't an uh, it wasn't autarkic like North Korea, uh, where they make absolutely everything. Uh, but certainly, uh, as as socialists, we would um, hope that the hypothesis that it is feasible to eradicate um, um, prices completely should hold, precisely for this reason that. Um, there's a <clears throat> there's a gap between the sort this let me put it another way the the set of all things that are useful that are beneficial to humans is larger than the set of all things that are profitable. <clears throat> so we we need um, an, the if something is profitable and we know it to be harmful to uh, to ourselves, uh, there is an incentive for that um, that that pro product to continue to be produced. If there is something that is not profitable, um, but is beneficial to us, or even isn't uh, sufficiently profitable, there is no incentive for it to be produced. And so um, what we have there is a situation where um, the products in society, the, the goods and services that are, that are made in society um, are made on the basis of an abstract, um, amoral, unconscious um, incentive price, uh, uh, profit, um, that we don't control <clears throat> and um so we are at the mercy of this amoral unconscious entity and um <clears throat> we need to liberate ourselves to be able to design history to be able to fully uh, liberate ourselves from um from the domination of this 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 abstract entity that sometimes produces things that are, are of great benefit to us and sometimes produces things that are uh, 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 great harm, and very often will not produce things that um, uh, that are beneficial to us uh, if they are, are profitable. So the more that we can uh, we can we can push um, the price signal out of our um, out, out of out of the economy, the greater the role that we can consciously control our society democratically. Um, a great example of this would be so at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, the uh, 
for a number of decades, uh, large pharmaceutical, large pharmaceutical companies had largely got out of the business of really investing investing money in, in, in vaccine uh, research. Vaccine research did continue, but it was largely done um, by uh, university labs, uh, government labs, and not for not for profit government labs. Um, <clears throat> the reason is that um, with vaccines, like with uh, antibiotics, generally not always, but generally. Um, it's it's once and it's done. You might need some boosters, but otherwise, you are. No, it's not a chronic. It's not like a chronic disease where you have to take a, a set of pills every day for the rest of your life. So there's a lot less profit in it, <clears throat> and so it just made much more uh, more sense for uh, large um, pharmaceutical companies to get out of uh, out of that business at the beginning of the pandemic. Recognizing this was a was an issue. Operation War Speed. I mean, there's a few precursors uh, to Operation War Speed. Um, uh, the, uh, the BARDA, which is a um, government-owned uh, um, advanced re biomedical advanced research sort of agency, uh, had already been um, uh, distributing billions of money to uh, billions of dollars to uh, to the pharmaceutical companies to get things going, and then with the Operation Warp Speed. Um, under Trump, this was a, a sort of an extension of that program. And additionally, there were what are called advanced purchase um, um, agreements uh, saying to the pharmaceutical companies that don't worry, uh, if, don't, if this particular vaccine doesn't work, we will still purchase, purchase a certain, uh, certain amount of them, uh, which guaranteed um, um, profits to those corporations. So it was a form of economic planning because the pharmaceutical companies were worried um, early on in the pandemic that uh, that um, the COVID would be just like SARS or MERS, that as deadly as it was, uh, as those were, in, fact, in, many, in many cases, it turns out to be less deadly, uh, more deadly than, uh, than than the COVID was, but uh, that it would fizzle out and that they would invest all this billion, these billions in, uh, in, in, in vaccine uh, development, and then they'd have a bunch of vaccines on their hands that they don't need to distribute. So it, it, uh, the profit mechanism right there is showing how um, something of enormous benefit to humans, um, if it's not profitable or even not profitable enough, will not be produced. This is a clear demonstration of how the, the more that we can, um, uh, so you took the state, that is to say the democratically elected um, uh, uh, entity uh, that does not need to make a profit to intervene to just decide production. Another example that you often give that I find quite compelling is antibiotics. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I find that really shocking. So we're still really stuck in um, in a situation where for about 40 years, uh, pharmaceutical companies largely got out of the business of um, doing any research into or very much research into um, uh, antibiotics. Um, because exactly the same reason, if you take a course of antibiotics, um, a few days later, in the case of most infections, you stop taking the course, the, the infection has, has, has cleared up with some more, um, uh, more tricky infections. You may need to say, such as for tuberculosis, um, you may need to take a course of antibiotics for four or five months. But again, the whole point is to eradicate the, the infection. At the end of that, if the, the, the antibiotics are working, you don't need to take them anymore. So again, they just are insufficiently profitable. Uh, so this is why the, the large pharmaceutical companies, excuse me, 
uh, largely got out of um, the, the uh, development of antibiotic anti antibiotics. And as a result of that, we haven't really developed any new classes of antibiotic in 40 years. And antibiotics um, act on, on bacteria. There will be inevitably a series of bacteria uh, who that, through the course of random um, evolutionary mutations, uh, will be resistant to, the, uh, to those antibiotics. Eventually, over time, because those resistant bacteria are able to reproduce at a greater rate than the ones that are susceptible to the antibiotics, those uh, resistant bacteria will dominate. And this is just evolution. It's inevitable. There's nothing, um, nothing that can be done about that. Uh, we can certainly speed up that process uh, and endanger ourselves by distributing antibiotics willy-nilly, uh, say, for viral infections or by their use in, um, in, within animal agriculture uh, to reduce low-level infections and therefore increase the, um, the, the, the animal mass and therefore the profitability of the, um, uh, the, 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 the agribusinesses. Um, but even if we didn't do that, we would still confront the problem of uh, this, uh, this evolutionary arms race between ourselves and, and, and bacteria, the mutations of bacteria. And so in that arms race, we have to keep producing uh, um, new classes of antibiotic. Otherwise, the, the one, one side in, in this war, this arms race, is continuing to develop new arms. And we're just like, we're AWOL. We've, you know, absent without leave. We, we're just, we, we've, we've retreated from the battlefield. And so um, um, government um, sort of policymakers try to think of all sorts of different ways to incentivize um, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies to get back into the business of um, developing antibiotics. And I mean, that is itself a form of economic planning in, in recognizing that the market, the, uh, mar the profit, profit incentive market signals are insufficient. And so we have to sort of tweak them. I think an even simpler way would just be for the government to take over um, the pharmace pharmaceutical sector and treat it uh, sort of the, uh, the way that we do with the post office where uh, profitable routes subsidize unprofitable routes. So to send a package from uh, Vancouver to Calgary is a very profitable route. Um, but sending a package from Vancouver to um, uh, to Whitehorse is, is not very profitable because Whitehorse is, um, for international listeners, is a, you know, a small population center. Um, but the price of sending a package to both these locations is exactly the same. But because by dint of being a Canadian citizen, um, you have the right to um, to to uh, to send packages to anywhere in the country for a given price. And so this way, what we, we could do is those unprofitable um, um, uh, um, sectors of, of, of uh, parts of the pharmaceutical sector uh, could um, be subsidized by the profitable ones. There are lots of profitable sectors. Let's use that money to uh, to subsidize the um, uh, the profitable ones within the public and uh, within the public sector. The scariest thing that I find about that is like something that we desperately need as human beings. It you know we need you know you don't want to live in a world that doesn't have antibiotics. But because yeah. it's not profitable or it's becoming less profitable to produce something, you just take a course of antibiotics and you're done. You know, 
we may not produce more of them. And that's really bad for humanity. Yeah, I would say that it is um, a, a threat to humanity on the scale of climate change, perhaps even even more, um, not existential, but certainly threatening to our way of life. Because all of modern, almost all of modern medicine from surgeries to giving birth to just sticking a suture, you know, um, in your arm uh, depends upon a background of microbial protection, antimicrobial protection. Once that's gone, we retreat to a sort of uh, Victorian era of medicine where we are not able to, to halt infections. Um, all of those sorts of um, um, medical interventions such as surgery and other things that I mentioned now become incredibly dangerous, uh, much more dangerous than they are at the moment. Uh, just regular infections, you know, scratch from a rose bush. If you get an infection there, suddenly perhaps um, you might, um, you, your, your life might be threatened. Um, and so the only way that at that point that we would be able to save your life perhaps is by cutting off your arm, the way that this happened in the 19th century. Um, it's, it's, it's very frightening. It, I would say, it, let me put it another way. Uh, so, um, I can't remember her name now, but, um, she was a former uh, scientific, chief scientific advisor to the European Commission when I was um, when I was working in Brussels. And she uh, said, Sally Davis, Sally Davis, she said that this was a threat on on a par with climate change. And yet, for some reason, there isn't a mass movement, uh, mass um, sort of activist movement uh, pushing for the, uh, the nationalization of the pharmaceutical sector to overcome this challenge. Um, that, I, the only thing I can think is that, um, that we have, we, we exist in a, in a moment where, um, the left, the activist left is convinced of the sins of modernity and climate change, a sort of crude reading of the problem of climate change, um, suggests that modernity is the problem. Uh, it isn't, but many people sort of take that reading or have a sort of vague conception that we we made an error some uh, time, <clears throat> took the wrong fork in the road with the Industrial Revolution. Um, Naomi Klein thinks that uh, it's the scientific method itself that was the problem, that uh, the uh, Baconian desire to dominate nature was the, uh, was the original sin. Um, but um, antibody resistance uh, suggests that if anything, we need a lot more modernity, um, uh, and so there, uh, to, to solve the problem, we need more science, um, uh, more medical intervention, more rationality. Uh, we need, uh, and that's something that I don't think is it uh, doesn't uh, offer the same um, uh, narrative about sin uh, that the uh, that the climate change the climate change offers um, the, the the movement. They, it strikes me that there's this equation or conflation of science and capitalism and modernity where it's just yeah. to hell with it all sort of thing. I want to come back to that, this idea of modernity and um, and the environmental movement. But just, just to st stay on this example, you know, not only do we stop making drugs that we really need, <laughs> um, but they, it's created this whole industry for creating new needs, new illnesses, new kinds of chronic illness. Um, and that becomes a massive, a massive industry. I was, I, you know, I, I was always 
very um, reluctant to criticize big pharma. It always struck me as this kind of like lazy critique, you know, and I, I would always say, you know, especially when it comes to like their um, psychological or psychiatric interventions. Uh, and and I would always say, look, you, you wouldn't have a market if you didn't have a culture that was receptive to this. But then, but then I wrote an article, I was commissioned to write an article on on the opiate crisis and I was horrified. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like the line between like you're the drug dealer on the street and the 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 opiate the guy selling the opiates for a pharmaceutical company was so like permeable. Like you had strippers in lab coats like hawking this stuff. Yeah, it no, was it, it's crazy. This, this is this is markets. This is what markets do. Um, uh, if something is profitable, it must be done. It is the the the, uh, the imperative of the, of the company to do so. There is a great error. Um, made by a lot of people in a sort of uh, sense that the the reason that um, um, there is a problem with big pharma is its bigness. I mean, that's a big pharma. That is, if um, some smaller pharmaceutical company would do exactly the same thing, it's the market is that that's a problem, not the size. Um, <clears throat> it's not the size of the the the, the firm. And so long as we um, we continue to uh, identify the problem uh, or identify, identify the, co uh, the cause of antisocial um, uh, behavior as size rather than uh, markets. We are distracted from, um, from, from the source of the, the error and we will continue to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to reproduce that error. Um, there's a, 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 as a result of this, we have a lot of, <clears throat> Um, sort of embrace of alternative medicine with no uh, scientific um, 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 evidence uh, for the efficacy of, of, of this stuff whatsoever. And the um, it's, it's a real it's a retreat from scientific modernity, um, the, uh, the the widespread embrace of homeopathy, of uh, naturopathy, of uh, um, acupuncture and so on and so forth. And to some extent, this is understandable with respect to people's frustrations with uh, the um, the villain, the various villainies that you've just listed uh, with respect to the opioid crisis of, of the large pharmaceutical companies. But those, uh, those um, uh, the, the providers of all of those alternate amendments are also uh, in, uh, are actors within the market. And so they have an incentive to, um, uh, to uh, in exactly the same way as the large pharmaceutical companies, to do whatever it takes to make money, including hawking um, um, uh, pill, sugar pills that uh, do absolutely nothing uh, compared to a placebo. Um, the, oh, who, what's his name? Um, um, British, Ben Goldacre. <laughs> Uh, ben Goldacre, a uh, you know, great uh, campaigner against alternative the, the, the shills and, and charlatans and quacks of alternative medicine. Now he also wrote a great book um, critiquing the the, the, villainy, the various villainies of uh, large pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I think we have to be able to have this uh, our, hold these two ideas in one our, our head at the same time that we uh, uh, we battle the. Um, the cracks and the charlatans of the alternative medicine, uh, alternative medicine industry, and the villainies of the uh, of large pharmaceutical companies. And the solution to both of these problems is the removal 
of, uh, of, of, of medicine entirely from, uh, from, from, from the market. In places like Canada or Britain, um, we have, or to a certain extent, uh, removed sort of half of medicine uh, from, the, from the market through the provision of, um, in the case of the, the UK, the National Health Service, in Canada, the, the Canadian Health Service. Although, if you don't fund it properly, if you introduce internal markets, you result in all sorts of um, um, pathologies as well. But nevertheless, in principle, the idea of public health care is, is, is a very, very good one. But we've only done half of the job there, that we've taken the the hospital or provision of hospital services and, and clinics out of out of the out of the market, but we haven't taken uh, pharma, the pharma, pharmaceutical sector out of the market. We need to do that as well. Then Goldacre puts it uh, very uh, very very well. I think that um, uh, it, it, uh, big pharma being shit does not mean that magic beans cure cancer. Um, that we have to be um, very very clear headed in our critique uh, of um, uh, big pharma, uh, alternative medicine, and the marketization and underfunding of public health care. All those three things at the same time. And we have to be careful that we, in our critiques of alternative medicine, we don't defend big pharma. And that in our critiques of big pharma, we don't fall into the, um, the pseudoscience of alternative medicine. And in our defense of public health care, we don't fall into the trap of being blinded to the underfunding uh, to the marketization, to the internal markets, and to um, bureaucratic, um, self-serving um, um, actors within um, uh, within uh, the, the, the healthcare system as well. Of course, a critic will say that um, this bureaucratic, self-serving individual is a feature of of planning. They're and not wrong. They're absolutely not wrong. This is perhaps a much more um, one of the greatest critiques of uh, public ownership. It, if you have, um, if you bring something into the public sector, uh, the the actors in the, the, the people who work in that sector have an interest in that sector maintaining itself and expanding itself and, and, and earning more money. Um, that's absolutely true. Um, the, uh, the, the only solution to that is to, uh, so it, that problem, um, um, is exacerbated the less the democratic control of that, uh, that public sector entity is. So the greater the democratic control, um, the, the more that the actors in that public sector entity um, are forced to um, become creatures of the democratic majority, of just carrying out their um, being, um, just executing the orders of the democratic majority. It is when they uh, become an entity on their own uh, that uh, they, uh, with some level of remove from democratic control, that these uh, the bureaucracy bureaucracies metastasize. In in many ways, that is exactly the same process that we see within. Uh, the, the problem is almost identical to that of markets, in that we have a an actor uh, that is um, self interested, that is not uh, democratically controlled. In the case of markets. It is the amoral, unconscious profit incentive that is uh, deciding for us what is going to be produced or what is or what will not be produced. And in the case of the um, the uncontrolled, anyway, um, uh, bu uh, bureaucrat or bureaucratic um, sort of agency, once again, it is uh, a, a, an actor, an agent uh, that is not under the democratic 
uh, control of, 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 the dem of the majority. Um, it's almost exactly the same problem. And the, uh, so the solution to the, um, the, the very real problem of um, runaway bureau bureaucracies is not the introduction of markets because that's, you're just replicating um, a, uh, a, a, the creation of an actor, an agent that, uh, that decides for you what is going to happen. It's in, just in this case, it's it's unconscious. And in the, in the case of the uh, the, uh, the bureaucrats, those are actual um, conscious human actors. The other thing, too, that you have to realize is that, you know, I, I teach modules in, um, you know, I teach sociology to healthcare professionals and to nurses and this sort of thing. And one thing that really disturbed me that was that over time I watched is all the clinical programs got management modules. And I was like, well, why are they learning about management when they're so young? You know, they're just like coming fresh out of university. They're going to go into like entry level positions. It was like, oh, because like the life, you know, how long you're actually going to spend in these positions is not that long. They need to make sure they get off the front line and go up into management as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like horrified by that. Like, but the thing is, if you're going to understaff and like be obsessed with uh, efficiency, um, you know, people burn out. They, they burn out very quickly and it becomes, you know, why would you want, you, you cannot work long hours, these kinds of shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you have to have some kind of entry or exit plan. And, and for a lot of people, it's get up into management and social work is the same way. Um, right. So it's, you know, because it's such exhausting work and it's like, you know, as, as the NHS, for instance, in the UK gets encumbered with more and more social problems that they can't possibly solve, as social work gets encumbered with all these problems, your caseload gets higher and higher and higher yeah. and you have more and more people coming. It just becomes a huge mess. Yeah, no. And uh, those of us who, um, from sort of liberals and social democrats, democratic socialists, and um, uh, everybody on the left needs to be, that is, that is willing to defend notions of public health care or public anything, public education. Um, whatever sort of sector that uh, either exists within uh, within within sort of the public sector, or that we want to bring into the public sector, <clears throat> we need to be we need to arm ourselves with knowledge of the pathologies of public sector entities of bureaucracies. Uh, if we don't, we open ourselves up to very legitimate criticism um, and the best possible criticism from from the right, from people who want to uh, privatize uh, everything. Um, and it, we, it is not enough for us to just blindly say, um, just defend public sectors without uh, imagining that there are there are real issues. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.